Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and other creatures. I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. This week we'll be covering Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, the lectionary text scheduled for December 1st, 2019. It's the first Sunday of Advent in year A, so happy new liturgical year. Yay! Yay! For all of you church geeks out there. In honor of the beginning of Advent, and because we do this every month anyway, we are bringing you a full-length episode of First Reading with a special guest scholar, Dr. Tyler Mayfield. Dr. Mayfield is the A.B. Rhodes Professor of Old Testament at my own alma mater, Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary in Kentucky, though you'll probably be able to hear his native Alabama in his voice. He's the author, most recently, of A Guide to Bible Basics, which is a handy, data-packed little guidebook with synopses and outlines of every book in the Bible, and it overviews important themes, characters' lives, etc. It's really, really a good resource. Tyler is also the faculty director of the Louisville Grawmeyer Award in Religion, which is, I think, the most prestigious prize in the field of religious studies, awarding an annual $100,000 prize to scholars whose work has helped illuminate the divine human relationship. In his own scholarship and teaching, Tyler has prioritized ethical readings of the Hebrew Bible with special attention to the interfaith implications of how we handle the Bible. He's currently working on some projects related to what Christian preachers do with the Old Testament text during Advent, which means he's the absolute perfect guest to kick off Advent with us. In fact, he has a book in the works right now called Unto Us a Child is Born, Isaiah, Advent, and Our Jewish Neighbors, which is probably going to be out this next summer uh, at Airmans. So you're going to want to look for that, especially if these themes that we're talking about today are really pertinent for you and your context. Well, Tyler Mayfield, welcome to First Reading. Thank you. It's good to be here. So Tyler, uh, you and I just met, but I discovered that we have something in common, which is that we're both married to practicing pastors. So I'm I'm curious how you've uh, navigated the the sermon listening um, waters where you're in the pew and listening to your spouse preach. How do, how do you do that in in your setting? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I have decided um, after several not helpful encounters over the years early in our marriage that I am an encourager and that my role as husband trumps my role as scholar. So I'm a big fan of my wife's preaching. And if she needs or wants discussion or help or just a sounding board, then I'm, you know, thankful to do that um, before she preaches. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Do do you find do you find that having you know having that sort of connection to preaching keeps you you exegetically grounded in the real world in a way that you wouldn't be without that? Yeah, it's really helpful. I she was in one particular church where she was the only staff person, so she preached every week, and just seeing that sort of weekly discipline that's needed. Mm-hmm was really helpful to me and also just made me appreciate that the sermon is a really important piece of the work, but it's only one piece of it. And that ministers really need good resources um, where they can get into the text and do that work and write that sermon within a limited time frame. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Tyler, uh, we 
often, well, we always invite the best guests on our podcast who are biblical generalists in the best way and whose particular work often has some tangential connection to what we're talking about. But uh, we really hit the jackpot in inviting you here to talk with us in Advent season about preaching from the Hebrew Bible from the Old Testament because of your current work on Isaiah and Advent and loving our Jewish neighbor. Could you tell us a little bit more about that project and kind of give us a little preview of it? Because I think those themes are going to flow right into our talk about Isaiah 2 today. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, This work really comes out of my teaching in the seminary classroom. So in one particular semester, uh, several years ago, I was teaching a course on Hebrew exegesis of Isaiah. And then on another day of the week, I was teaching a course on biblical interpretation after the Holocaust, because I'm really interested in a sort of post-Holocaust Christian reading of the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. You know, I think I was in both of those classes. Yeah, I was wondering as I was saying that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as I was moving back and forth between those two classes, um, I sort of got in my mind that it would be helpful to bring what we were doing in each of those um, to focus on the book of Isaiah. So I started doing some digging around, um, realized that Isaiah is used a lot during the season of Advent, um, that it is in year A, all four of the first readings are from Isaiah. In year B, I think it's three out of four are from Isaiah. And we just have in our litanies and liturgies, um, a lot of Isaiah comes up during uh, the season of Advent. So I wanted to suggest to Christian readers, Christian preachers, that we use a sort of bifocal look at the book of Isaiah, and that one of those lenses would be um, reading the book as a Christian through the themes of Advent. So what are the theological resources that are really present during that particular season that might um, be brought to bear on the book of Isaiah? And, And that way we would be reading in a very Christian way, and one that we could be proud of and that one that we could really stand in. But that another lens that we would need to use in this sort of bifocal reading would be another Christian lens, which is um, love of neighbor. And so it's really important to me that Christians, when they read and teach and preach Isaiah, see it as a book that we share with another religious tradition, with Jews and with Judaism. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to talk about how we might share that book and how um, there's temptation to not share. And there's temptation and a whole history within the Christian tradition uh, using the book in, I would say, anti-Jewish and supersessionist uh, ways. So the book basically talks about those two different lenses, and then it works its way through the different Isaiah passages that come up during Advent. So Isaiah 2, um, for sure, but also Isaiah 7, 9, 11, 35, 40, all of these um, texts end up as part of our theological imagination um, during Advent. Well, I can't wait to buy it. (laughs) Yeah, same here. (laughs) Thanks. Yeah, I hope it's helpful. I'm glad you're doing that in part just because I have this horrible, embarrassing memory of early uh, college. And my dad was a, he still is a Lutheran pastor. And I went to text study with him and just started talking about how amazing Isaiah was to have foretold this child so many years later. 
And there was this super awkward silence as this room of pastors tried to figure out how do we deal with this right now? (laughs) That that would have been a helpful thing to have known earlier on. Well, in your defense, you were standing in a long line of the Christian tradition um, that sees uh, Isaiah as, you know, the fifth gospel. You know, we, we Christians have elevated Isaiah up to the same um, status as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, and, and Christians really saw that as an elevation where he went from being a prophet to an evangelist. So what I'm interested in is keeping him as a prophet, uh, for sure, and a prophet that still speaks to our contemporary concerns and needs today, but maybe not in that same sort of predictive kind of way. For whatever reason, the advent and the way the readings come about, um, Isaiah was foretold it, is just sort of always there <laughs> and always the possibility that preachers can reach for, that here's this passage in Isaiah, and now we're going to follow it in this linear kind of way, and we're going to see how the New Testament or Jesus fulfills this text. And it, it's dangerous because when, when we say that the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament in that sort of a predictive way, we've exhausted Isaiah. He's done what he's supposed to do, and Jesus has fulfilled it, and now we can put that aside and move on to other things. Whereas if we listen to the voice of Scripture through, through Isaiah into our present context, then there's a whole lot more that Isaiah can do for us. Yeah, absolutely. I think seeing the Gospels, and, you know, for, for year A in Advent, it's going to be um, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew's going to show up all four weeks. Seeing Matthew and Isaiah as two independent traditions and sources that both can stand alone, and they can be in conversation with each other, um, one of them doesn't have to be the louder voice, because we have this notion of canon that allows for Old Testament and New Testament texts to speak into our situation. So whatever Matthew does with Isaiah is, is wonderful and helpful, but it's, it's not the only way to read Isaiah. Um, it's the way that a first century Jewish follower of Jesus read Isaiah. Well, I feel like that's a perfect time to move to the word. Is that where you were going to go, Tim, too? Yeah, in, in the spirit of uh, preachers don't have a lot of time to prepare, why don't we <laughs> give them something to really uh, chew on in Isaiah 2? So we're looking this week at Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And Tyler, would you be willing to read that for us in English? Yeah, sure. I'm going to read the New Revised Standard Version. The word that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills and all the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and shall arbitrate for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Excellent. Well, uh, one of the things that we always do 
Um, Tyler, could you introduce us a little bit to kind of where this is coming from? Uh, like who, who Isaiah, we don't have to go all the way to the beginning of everything, but for people who need a little bit of a, of a refresher huh. on who Isaiah is and, and where this prophecy might be situated historically. Yeah, uh, this is a particularly um, contested chapter, actually, in Isaiah. It comes very early in uh, the book. And so um, it seems like, in fact, with that first sort of verse, it's almost like there's a title that's beginning uh, the collection here. And so mm-hmm. some people have even argued that we're, that an earlier version of the book may have even started here with this idea that the word of Isaiah uh, that he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So um, some scholars have dated this. Uh, text to the 8th century to Isaiah himself. And so this would be um, Isaiah the prophet who uh, lived and ministered during the second half of the 8th century when uh, Assyria is the main empire that's um, looming large in the area. Um, Assyria during that time period has already destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel or, or does during Isaiah's lifetime and threatens Judah, the southern kingdom, um, with destruction as well. And actually, Judah uh, comes very, very close um, in 701 uh, to being destroyed. And so I think this text could plausibly sort of come out of that context of late 8th century um, Isaiah the prophet trying to sort of struggling with um, Jerusalem's place in the world. Um, and in light of these sort of imperial powers that are all around. Um, on the other hand, I would just note that there's not a lot of historical markers here. So we don't get a lot of specifics that would help us ground this text historically, which means that folks have easily sort of taken it in an eschatological direction because it's it's hard to to know precisely when it was written and you have this um, phrase about the days to come or in future days. And so folks find it very easy to kind of lift it out of a historical context and begin to push it uh, to an eschatological uh, future. Um, So maybe it's eighth century based on some of the vocabulary, the concern for Jerusalem, the, the people coming to Jerusalem, nations coming to Jerusalem, uh, it could also be the case that it is a early post-exilic um, uh, work that's put here at the beginning of Isaiah. It introduces a lot of themes that you're going to see throughout the book of Isaiah. It it matches with some themes that you're going to see early on in Isaiah if you keep reading the next few chapters. But it also goes really well with some of the language and chapter and theologies that you're going to get uh, later on in uh, later chapters, which... Uh, scholars usually date to the exile or to the post-exilic period. Yeah, it wouldn't be unusual for a book that that has a sort of complicated uh, composition history to have some material that's later in in time, kind of fronted onto the book. So that's a possibility too. So so there's some flexibility about where this might land historically, but it it seems to work in either of those contexts pretty well. Yeah, I agree. 
One of the things that I noticed right away uh, has to do with uh, the the focus in this section on the mountain of God. And that, that struck me because it seems like the mountain of God is talking about, well, uh, Jerusalem and maybe particularly the temple complex there. And uh, after, after all of chapter one being so critical of, of the sort of temple uh, corruption and all of that, to kind of uh, start out this section by saying that the, the mountain of God will be elevated to the highest place, the highest mountain, just struck me as an interesting contrast. What, what did you make of that? Yeah, so Zion, or, or, well, the mountain, of course, probably is representing here the temple um, and the sort of um, kind of elevated uh, to a very prominent place. I would read it kind of metaphorically, right, that, that it grows in importance conceptually for the prophet as uh, we think about the nations uh, coming to Jerusalem, uh, streaming in and seeing this uh, temple and seeing the importance of the temple uh, raised up it's going to be a center of learning, right? It's going to be this place, attractive place. And the way that the prophet does that is by this uplifting uh, of, of a, a mountain. As you all know, if you've ever been to um, Israel and Jerusalem, it's not on a, the highest mountain in the area. Right. Um, there, are, there are other mountains around it that are um, higher. And so it, if it's going to have a prominent place, it actually does need to be raised up. So maybe that kind of, physicality leads to the use of this metaphor. Who, who would those nations be when it says, what's the vision here of, of nations and peoples? It says those are Goyim and Amim. What, yeah. What's going on there? Yeah. And, and, and notice what they're doing. They're, they're streaming to it, which is probably not a bad translation because the verb there is we get the noun river um, from that verb. So they're, they're making like a river and uh, streaming into it. So it's a very natural kind of organic uh, way that these nations and peoples come to, come to this mountain. So I think that's a very interesting, again, thinking about the historical context. These nations could be the neighbors of Israel, the close neighbors like the Edomites and the Moabites. I was wondering if uh, some of the Goyim coming to Jerusalem might be refugees from the northern kingdom, if, if this might be speaking into the context where uh, the, the northern kingdom has been plundered by Assyria, and we know that there were quite a large number of refugees streaming into Jerusalem and its surrounding area. Maybe, maybe some of that's reflected in, in this, especially when it kind of goes on to talk about the house of Jacob, which could be a reference to the northern people in particular. Yeah, that's a, a great thought. If if you can imagine that this text was written within uh, 10 or 20 years of that uh, great destruction that happened in the North, uh, then the invitation for nations and peoples would include uh, absolutely those, those folks as well. You know, what's interesting about that God of Jacob piece is Jacob, again, is used a lot in the book of Isaiah. Uh, it's used throughout the book. And so scholars have often wondered what it is about Jacob, the person uh, that gets uh, used uh, here. Why, why Jacob? If you're thinking about it in a post-exilic context in which Israel, uh, the nation, has gone into exile and come back out, then uh, Jacob makes sense as a person who also experienced a sort of sense of exile and return 
um, oh, back. Yeah. And so maybe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, Jacob becomes a kind of exemplar of uh, exile and return so that the God of Jacob is the God who goes with these people and goes with Jacob into exile and, and returns back to them. So Jacob, the patriarch, becomes maybe an important figure for Israel as it thinks about who it is and what kind of God goes with them. I really like that, especially because if you think about, um, I think, isn't it Genesis 28 where he has the dream, which is the, you know, the famous Jacob's ladder with the angels ascending and descending. And God comes down and says, I, I will bring you back to this land. I will give you these promises. And Jacob wakes up. But then there's still this sense of uncertainty or ambiguity where Jacob says, if you bring me back then you will be my God. There, there, you know, Jacob's not only the story of exile and, and leaving and returning, but an uncertainty while that process, ha- you know, happens, whether or not God will be faithful in the midst of it, which I could see really resonating with an exilic community. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I want to get to, uh, in, in verse three here, we have the, the key word Torah, which comes up in a couple forms. We see it uh, there with Torah coming forth from Zion, but also that that God may instruct us in his ways, it says. That word instruct is also the, the verbal form, yara. And uh, I think that's probably a key word for this whole passage. You've mentioned a couple times, Tyler, of the picture here of Jerusalem as a, as a house of learning in a way. And so that word instruction really seems to be significant. And I just wanted to flag that often uh, Torah gets translated law. And in some of the translations of this passage, uh, it's translated that way. But it seems to have a different flavor here, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so, for sure. So what's fascinating to me about this picture of the mountain and the temple is that it is not um, depicted as a place of uh, sacrifice, for example, which you might um, be naturally sort of assuming would, would happen at a temple. Instead, what is present is teaching and learning. Um, and you're right, this, the word uh, turns into this noun for Torah, which I would translate as uh, teachings or instruction. Um, it's the word that eventually uh, in the tradition will end up being uh, the word that Jews use for the first five books of the Bible, but um, we're not there yet in the tradition. And so here we have an understanding that it is uh, God's dream, we could even put it kind of very loosely, God's dream to fulfill. Nice. Right? I mean, it has a teaching kind of component to it, but who does God want us to be um, and how are we to live? I think Torah has um, a lot to do with ethics. So maybe there are rules and regulations. And so I wouldn't want to completely get rid of the word law, although I think for Christians, law is a very slippery word um, because it does bring up some connotations of ritualistic or legalistic, right, kind of ways of thinking um, because we've been trained in certain ways of of dealing with Paul in the New Testament. But I would say here that, um, that, yeah, the Torah really is the way that God wants us to live, and it's God's vision for the world. 
I, I love that um, your nuancing of that word Torah for a couple reasons. The main one is that I think all of our words for it, law, instruction, even teaching to a certain extent, miss the juice of it, which is that it, it bears life. And, and we just don't really have a great way of capturing that juiciness in the word, um, which it just kind of gets deflated. So I, I like that idea, even a vision for Torah, which is really neat. I agree that it, it does need a, we do need some better language around it. I talk about sometimes in, in Hebrew class that some Hebrew words need paragraphs of definition, yeah, right. right? They don't need, there's not a one-to-one correspondence to an English word. And so sometimes it's better um, to speak in paragraphs. And Torah is one of those words where you really need a paragraph. Um, you're not going to get it with one English word, even though translations are going to, um, have to choose a word. And the effect of Torah in this passage is so uh, brilliant. The the beating of swords into plows and the turning of spears into, you know, pruning shears or whatever. That that sort of just visual, the implements of, of violence being turned into implements of flourishing and cultivation. It's just a, a beautiful, and it's like, that's the natural, if you're hearing Torah, that's what happens. Yeah, that's beautiful. Yep, absolutely. So verse four, um, exactly as you said, sort of tells us what happens when Torah goes forth. And, and God is set up as the judge or the arbitrator uh, among the nations, that with God's justice, you know, you could talk about it as God's judgment, but it's also the word for God's justice mm-hmm. um, goes forth. Then the result of that is that people actually transform their weapons, which are now useless because of God's justice, right? No longer needed, no longer necessary. They, they transform those weapons into useful uh, agricultural tools, right? And so they take something that they don't need anymore and they, they turn them into uh, something that is productive and helpful. What is particularly interesting to me is that sometimes that phrase gets quoted at least in circles that I participate in, in sort of uh, loose kind of ways, uh, progressive kind of ways that don't have a lot of, um, I think, detail around them. It's just pie in the sky kind of stuff. You know, it it gets turned into sort of conversations around world peace, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, But thinking about the kind of transformation that would need to happen to turn weapons into agricultural tools, and that if you actually look up the Hebrew verb, you, you're going to see that it's talking about crushing it into pieces. One, one definition might even be to pulverize. <laughs> so um, this is not a shallow or easy task. These, these tools of death to become instruments of life have to go through a pretty dramatic process. And so I think that's really cool that the Hebrew there um, talks about this as kind of a natural result of Torah, but it may not be a simple result. It may not be a simple process. 
Well, the only way I can think about it is, you know, what what happens when a baby is born? Like, it doesn't just poof and there's a baby. Like, there is a a pulverizing, there is a, a an agony, you know, of yeah. labor that has to happen for new life to come. And and this is a this isn't a birth imagery here, but it's a similar process of um of of great labor that comes from turning, as you said, tools of death into implements of life. Yeah, absolutely. That's beautiful. I like that that imagery. I got one more just thought then on on verse. Five. Well, I have a couple thoughts on verse five. Um, my one thought is is it's I understand why the lectionary stopped after verse five, but to me, verse five feels like a hinge into almost the main point of the passage, which we we don't get um, in part because it turns a lot darker, a lot harder. You know, we go we go from that uh, that ecstasy of new life back into the agony of labor in the following <laughs> right. <laughs> the following verses. Right, I think you're exactly right. Verse five for me is the hinge verse that could easily be both the kind of conclusion to verses one through four and could also be the very first verse in a new textual unit um, that starts in verse five. And so in that way, it looks backwards and looks forward. So Isaiah's vision of folks coming to Jerusalem uh, to learn about Torah only lasts for a brief moment before he's ready to get back to his earlier theme of judgment against the nation for their wrongdoings. And yet, I'll say, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord is a wonderful Advent theme. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah use that for your whole Advent, right? Walk in the light of the Lord. And, and ties into the fact that many of us are participating in Advent during the winter, during a dark season, and many of our church traditions light candles um, to mm. celebrate Advent. So come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And light is light is a metaphor for revelation as well. So it's it's... It fits well uh, in that sense in what we've talked about with uh, Torah being an insight into God's dream for the world. Like now let's live in that light, in the light of that knowledge of that understanding of Torah. Right. Well, um, one one other thing I wanted to just point toward um, that we I don't think we talked about yet, but it actually goes back to the beginning of the passage. Um Isaiah frames this this little vignette here in terms of the the last days or the 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 end of days. Do you have any insight into why he frames this in terms of that sort of maybe this is a vision of something way in the future or what is what's he talking about with the last days? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure that he is using this in an eschatological way, especially if it's the eighth century prophet Isaiah. Uh, I think he might be thinking of a undefined, unspecified time in the future, um, in days to come, might be a nice translation, you know, at some point in the future. Um, and you know, another way to think about this passage is as a utopian kind of vision for the way the world might be. And as we know, utopias are actually not really ever about the future. They're often critiques of the present. So what you have here with this vision of how things might be, might actually just be a critique of the way that Jerusalem is functioning now in the present reality of, of Isaiah. So Torah is not being taught like it should be, or people are not streaming to Jerusalem like they should be. And so um, the vision is put out there of a day when that might happen, when the full kind of 
understanding of Zion and Jerusalem will be made known to the world. And that's put into the future uh, at some unspecified time. What ends up happening, though, in the Christian tradition, at least, is during Advent, because the text is read during Advent and because it's read on a Sunday where we also read uh, Matthew 24, it ends up taking on eschatological features. It ends up being read as at the end of the world, right? At the end of time, uh, these things will happen and this is the way that Jerusalem will be. And yet I also think that a lot of the power that we've been talking about for the past few minutes is kind of lost if you take this passage and set it at the end of the world, because you have to wait for that kind of justice. You have to wait for that kind of understanding of Torah instead of thinking about it as a real possibility for us to work to and toward today. Hmm. Rachel, if you were preaching it, where would you take it? Oh, after our conversation today, I'd take it like 15 different places. But if I, uh, if I had to limit it, um, I think, Tyler, you lifted up a great uh, refrain, walk in the light of the Lord. The other place I'd go with it is a little bit darker, and, and maybe it's not what a, a lot of people are wanting to do on the first Sunday of Advent, but one of my favorite things about Advent is that it, too, is an ambiguous time. It's a celebration of light in the midst of darkness as our days grow darker. And for a lot of people, Advent is a really tough time. Uh, those who have lost family or loved ones recently or even far in the past, there is not that pure joy that necessarily society sometimes tries to present during this time period. So what if you were to lean into that in this text? What if you were to take that mirrored call in verses 5 and 2, the supposedly unclean nations streaming to God with the supposedly chosen nation called to come and and walk in God's ways? Um This is a beautiful passage, but I wonder if its presence here is in part being used to contrast with what comes after. Instead of beating swords into plowshares, they're hoarding gold and silver shares, if you will. Um, This text kind of seems to be a classic example of um, when what you preach does not match your actions. Um, And if if you're a Lutheran listening to that podcast, that may sound a little too Reformed theology for you, so let me say it in a more Lutheran way. This text seems to be a classic example of the old Adam and the old Eve trying to hide behind a facade of newness. Uh, The vision in this text is a promise of the reality God sees for creation, but we cannot grasp that vision if we're clutching our spears to our chest, and we cannot stream to God's mountain if we are intent on plunging our heads into murkier waters. We cannot hold God's vision with our fingers crossed behind our backs. So this text is a vision of the gospel, and it's also a dash of cold water on those of us who think we can just slide in under the radar. God wants your whole self, even and especially those pieces that you would prefer to keep safely out of view. And it's only in the surrender of those pieces to the Savior that we die and can be born again through that labor that we were talking about earlier to new life. How about you, Tim? What did you come up with? I really landed on the movement of this passage from verse 3 into 4, from Torah, God's dream for the world, like you put it, Tyler. I love that. From that into the cessation of violence. That seemed to really strike me. So um, the way I was hearing this was that Isaiah is saying that when, when people actually 
hear Torah, when they hear God's dream and follow those instructions, violence comes to an end and uh, reconciliation between people happens. So if we find ourselves continuing to participate in and contribute to violent systems that perpetuate themselves by pitting like nation against nation and people against people, we haven't actually heard God's Torah. We've missed it. And we're living in ignorance. And so Isaiah calls the people here, the people of God, to walk in God's light, to put aside their ignorance and to actually discover God's dream, God's way for humanity to be in the world. So he's, he's painting a picture of that actually happening. Um, maybe not at the end of the world, but someday out there and what he's talking about in, in the last days, however we think of that. And he's showing that that redeemed future is something that they can begin living into right now. That for me is the tie into Advent. Because for Christians, Advent is about remembering the coming of Jesus while also looking ahead with eager anticipation to the future that God has for all of creation. So the, the coming of Jesus into the world is kind of like the going out of, of Torah and the Devar Adonai in this text. It opens up a new possibility of living uh, the end, living the last days right now in the middle of time. Where do we see glimpses of God's good future erupting into our present? Where do we see signs of Torah being heard in our own community and in our own time? How can we participate in that experience, in that expansion of God's future into our present time? That's, that's kind of the seed of where I would take a sermon in kind of expanding on this, this flow of Torah into nonviolence. Mm, nice. Anything you would want to add, Tyler? <laughs> I just want to say that those are both beautiful reflections, and I would love to hear those sermons. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, then on that note, sounds like a, a great place to end our conversation. And uh, Tyler, it was just a pleasure to, to have you on the podcast and to hear your perspective on these things. So thanks so much for coming and talking with us. Yeah, it's been absolutely great. And I want to thank you two for this podcast and for highlighting the, the first reading in the lectionary and hopefully helping preachers to uh, take it on and to preach the Old Testament. That's right. Do it, folks. Do it. <laughs> now, remember, friends, if you're interested in more of Dr. Mayfield's work, we're going to post a link on our website to some of his uh, publications. So head on over to firstreadingpodcast.com, where you can also find our past episodes and subscribe to the, to the feed. You can also find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast fix. All that's left is to credit Blue Dot Sessions for the music behind the reading. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. <laughs>